I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program, and I understand you're joining us all the way from Virginia. That is correct, U.S. of A. U.S. of A. We're having a little chat before we went live about the uh, the pros and cons of living, say, in the suburbs versus the city, and just having access to that, the wide open spaces, and avoiding the fear of missing out that comes with living in the city and just being constantly surrounded by noise and people. I like how the suburbs make me restless, and then I want to explore other things. The city wears me down a bit. <laughs> yep, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, so, Tyler, your new book um, has just come out as of February the 27th, and it's called uh, The Complacent Class, and it explores how technology is effectively making us somewhat lazier. Um, and it's received critical reviews from the likes of Malcolm Gladwell, who basically has also said that your blog, Marginal Revolution, is the first thing he reads every morning. And he's called your new book brilliant, and it's been on his nightstand every day after devouring it in one sitting. So that's that's quite high praise from a, a well-respected um, author such as Malcolm Gladwell. So firstly, congratulations on the release of the book. And have you been quite busy since its release um, on embarking on any sort of a, a book tour or have you keeping it quite low-key? I would call it a podcast tour, not low-key at all. Uh-huh. Uh, but most of it I've done from this sofa here. Fantastic. And, and that's- this is... The basic result of information technology making it easier for us not to move around is reflected in the very book tour itself. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And while you're embarking on what I like to call a virtual book tour, um, the amount of people that you can actually get in front of is significantly bigger than what it would be if you were just you know, giving keynotes to several hundred people at a time. I mean, this, puts, this podcast itself uh, goes out to now just over 100,000 people a month. And I'm sure there's others that you have appeared on where they're reaching even larger audiences. So it just speaks to the wonders of modern technology. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, I think what we're doing is by sending information around more efficiently. We're making it possible to slow down change in the physical world. So many of the contemporary innovations, they keep us at home. So Amazon will send you packages. Mm -hmm. Uber now sends you food, your evening's dinner. Mm -hmm. Netflix uh, gives you your entertainment at home. And I think the net result is somewhat of a stultification of our own cultural existences. Mm, and, and that's essentially what the book explores, the impact of connectivity on humanity. And you argue in, in some ways that it's making us complacent and that the United States in particular is standing still. So does this apply to the United States as a whole? Or, I mean, when I explore this topic of uh, the, the complacent class, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is... I suppose, triggered from the recent uh, political results. And, you know, when I spoke with the likes of Alec Ross, who was the technology advisor to Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, he mentioned that, you know, in places like the Rust Belt, there is a tendency to want to bring back the past rather than learn new skills to take advantage of the future. But it sounds like what you're talking about applies across the board. Uh, Yes, and also to a lot of Western Europe and Japan. Mm -hmm. But I view the election of Trump 
as a search for a kind of stasis. It's a very backward-looking vision. When Trump talks about infrastructure, you know, mm -hmm. it's not about the smart grid and biotech. It's about repairing our tunnels and roads and bridges. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but it's not very inspiring. It's all about making America great again, mm -hmm. not building a new and better and brighter America for the future. So I think this is a kind of malaise. It's overtaken much of the country. The Hillary Clinton campaign, she also said, you know, things are okay. She never quite said they were great, but I'm going to keep them the way they are. And that was not enough to beat Trump, who was promising to go back to the past. Mm. And uh, I think there's something wrong with my country, which is supposed to be the most dynamic in the world, but it's become obsessed with slowing down change. Yeah, and it seems as if uh, this is actually heightening um, segregation between wealthy and poor, the haves and have-nots, so um, effectively becoming kind of like a snowballing um, result. So how does that play out when we have um, technologies sort of making the, the divide bigger? Well, since the 1990s, there's been more segregation by income in the United States. So rich people are more likely to live next door to other rich people, and in turn, poor people live next to other poor people. Uh, we know from the research of Raj Chetty, this tends to limit upward social mobility, that it's mixed neighborhoods that help poorer people rise to the top. Mm -hmm. So this makes income inequality worse. It also gives us you know, greater crime problems, problems with opioids. And we're walling ourselves off in these bubbles. You have you know, Clinton supporters who basically don't know any Trump voters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who are Trump voters who consider Clinton supporters, you know, the enemy in some way. And it's an unhealthy state of affairs for this nation. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. And um, on uh, us living in, in bubbles, um, I believe it was... Uh, David and Goliath, a book by Malcolm Gladwell, where there's a similar thing that he talks about there, which was hockey players. And when they first enlist in, say, peewee hockey at the age of five or six years old, it's the kids who are born, say, in the, in the first few months of the year, January through to, say, May, who tend to make the team because they're a bit older, they're a bit bigger. And what happens is they get more opportunity because they, they, get, they play in the first team, they get better coaching, and then if you follow them through to the NHL, there is a massive sort of disproportionate number of players who are born in the first half of the year. And similarly, if wealthy people are just um, are segregated and only hanging around with other wealthy people and poor people with other poor people, then that gap is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes, and schools are often the most segregated part of American society. Mm -hmm. And uh, that doesn't bode well for the future. Mm, definitely not. And um, you raised the point around 
bubbles, which is a very valid point in today's age of algorithms. And you know, when we got started chatting, we were talking about the likes of Uber and delivering us our food. Um, I know in your book you talk about some examples like Match.com. You know, matches matches us with potential mates. Spotify matches us with music we might like. And you know, we're quite, I suppose, comfortable used to seeing this. Uh, I suppose comments from from these providers uh, appear on our on our data feeds, which says something like, because you listened to X, you might like Y, which keeps us in, in those bubbles. You know, I, I'd love to say something that told us, because you listen to X, how about, some, how about trying something different like Y? Yes. You know, people sometimes ask me, well, what's wrong, what's wrong with all of this? I mean, isn't it comfortable? And of course it is, or we wouldn't do it. But you see overall, at least in the United States, rates of economic growth are down, labor markets are slower to adjust. Our rates of productivity growth are down. Our economy is actually falling somewhat behind, say, Australia or Canada. Mm. So this, to me, is a very worrying set of developments. One cannot actually be complacent forever. Mm, definitely. And on, on the slowdown with the labor markets, I mean, we've obviously seen a massive increase in technology. Moore's law just keeps moving forward. Um, and... You know, if we draw some parallels to, say, the early 20th century when there was that transition from steam to electrification, there was, say, a pro productivity paradox of about 30 to 40 years where productivity declined before uh, companies really adopted and started utilizing uh, electricity uh, at its fullest, fullest capacity. Do you see us uh, potentially being in a productivity paradox or is this something much bigger than that? No, I think we're definitely in a productivity paradox. Progress is not over. Mm -hmm. uh, that's extremely unlikely. But to turn the Internet into something truly beneficial uh, will still take decades. So a lot of the Internet now, it makes our leisure time better. But you don't see productivity in the office going up much. And in fact, it sometimes distracts people and lowers productivity in the office. So you mentioned with electricity, with automobiles, it takes decades to build the surrounding institutions so that you can actually take advantage of these developments. Mm. And I feel we're at the same place with the Internet. It's kind of an add-on to existing structures, and we need to restructure so we're building around the Internet with the Internet at the center. Yeah. Like higher education would be an example. You, you can email your professor, which is nice, uh, but the Internet should be the center of the university and the professors, in a sense, the add-on. Mm. So that's effectively arguing for, I suppose, re... Uh, I suppose redeveloping the education system. And I guess we're seeing entrepreneurs try to take that into their own hands with a lot of these online learning platforms, but at its core, the education system is still very much about K-12 education, university, get your degree, and so on. And those institutions seem to be a lot slower to adapt and respond to, to the technology change. That's right. You know, it's not that I think we can do all or even most education online but just transmitting information is best done online. So mm. the professor or the teacher should become more like a coach, a role model, a source of inspiration and a guide rather than someone who stands at a blackboard with a piece of chalk. That's what's inefficient. Yeah, well, It's that's... not that we should take the human being out of the equation. It's that we need to make the human actually more important. Well, that's exactly right. The human being should be there to facilitate outcomes. In, the, in terms of the transfer of, of knowledge and information, there's no reason why you can't deliver that online and then use that information in a class context to actually apply it and work towards some sort of a facilitated outcome where the teacher becomes a lot more valuable. Yes, that's right. Mm. Um, so on, 
I suppose, technology making us lazier. I mean, isn't this just something that human beings have more, more or less done from the dawn of time? I mean, we were once hunter-gatherers. Uh, you know, we had to hunt our own food, kill it, clean it, cook it, all that type of stuff. Well, obviously, today, we just walk down to the local grocery store, pick up all manner of produce from all over the world, and we've become focused on individual skill sets. So, I mean, is this just an, another iteration of that evolution, or um, is it really making us lazier? Now, this is quite different, I think. Mm -hmm. The technologies of the 19th and 20th century, in virtually every case, they made it easier to get around more quickly. So first you have the railroad and the car and the plane. Those get bigger and better and faster. But if you look at travel over the last 40 years, for the most part, it's gotten slower. Uh, China would be an exception. But in the United States, train travel has not gotten any faster in many decades. The bus network is being dismantled. Most people's commute. There's higher levels of congestion. Uh, we're often going back, you know, say to bicycling. And we're giving up the idea that we're, we're mastering our own physical space and, you know, withdrawing inwards to ourselves. Yeah. And I'm going back to bicycling. I know you talk about um, millennials driving a lot less than they once did. Is this just a reflection of them, say, moving towards to more urban spaces, bicycling more and being a little bit more environmentally conscious and, and using uh, mobility services such as Uber and Lyft? That's some of it, but even in the suburbs, it's pronounced that driving has become less important. It's more likely you'll be driven somewhere, and when you grow up as a kid, you're not going around on your bicycle exploring your neighborhood. Rather, your parents tend to schedule you. They control your movements. They're more likely to medicate you. They may forbid you from playing outside. Mm. Uh, it's a very different environment, and it gets back to this excess concern with safety that I call a form of complacency. Mm, yeah, and uh, what you said there about parents preventing their kids from going outside, uh, I'm not sure what it's like over in Virginia, but the instance of kids I see out on the street riding their bikes and, say, playing, say, tennis or cricket or soccer out on the street, it's it's almost once a year or twice a year I see that, whereas growing up, I used to see that every day. And it just seems like yes. kids are far more babied and they're constantly on their iPads and tablets indoors and not really getting out there and exploring the world. And in the long run, it's making us riskier. It's weakening community. It's weakening the ties we have with each other. So there's this, this recurring paradox in the book that things you do individually to make you feel safe when everyone does them collectively, they make us all actually less safe. Yeah, yeah. I love that, love that. Um, so on things making us, I suppose, less or more risk-averse and more likely not to switch jobs. I mean, I found that an interesting point because in Australia, for example, and in much of the Western world, I think the average tenor for, for staying at a job has dropped down to something like 3.3 years, which is quite low. I mean, the whole concept of a company man or company woman that stays in one organization for 20 or 30 years simply doesn't exist anymore. So I just, I guess I wanted to clarify what we actually meant there because it seems to me that people are spending less time in jobs and, and hop, skip and jumping from job to job. Well, I don't know the data for Australia. I do suspect in this regard, Australia is different from the United States. Mm -hmm. But here, time spent in jobs is actually increasing slightly. Right. You know, you've had a mining boom in your West, mm -hmm. and you've restructured your economy to sell all kinds of new things to China and the Pacific Rim. Correct. Uh, we've been in a more static situation. You haven't mm -hmm. had a recession in 25 years. 
so people feel more free to leave their jobs. They know they can get another one. So in these regards, you're ahead of us and you're more dynamic. But I'm sorry to say uh, we're not matching uh, the performance of our Australian peers in this regard. Sure. And, and with the, I suppose, increase in tenure uh, in the United States, is there, I suppose, evidence to suggest that this is particular groups of people within the U.S., particular types of industries? Like when I think of, say, the West Coast and, you know, the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley, when I think of New York and places like that, it seems as if the technology boom is really taking hold and people are uh, constantly hop, skip and jumping. Is this something that's more sort of isolated to, say, the Rust Belt or to more blue-collar types of work? Well, it's, it's most of the country. I wouldn't say it's true, you know, in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. But it's striking that the Bay Area is a pretty small percentage of the American economy. The one group that is still the most dynamic here, as is the case in many countries, is immigrants. You know, by definition, they've made a big move. They know they'll have to adjust. They don't expect to stick with the first job they get. And I call immigrants our non-complacent class in the United Mm. States. Yeah, and that's a whole new, whole other topic, I suppose. Um, There's a lot um, of thought leadership out there on immigrants, especially when it comes to immigration and entrepreneurship and coming to the country with very little, but having big dreams and then not only having dreams, but going after those dreams, taking action and so on. And your book um, talks about uh, grand projects um, and how you believe that Americans are postponing change and they aren't as ambitious as they used to be. So I guess firstly, what's your sort of definition of a grand project? Winning the Second World War was a grand project. Building the interstate highway system, uh, connecting America or Australia with a a network of railways, Mm -hmm. those were grand projects. Uh, We're less interested in those now. The one grand project we've had is to give everyone a smartphone. Uh, That's gone pretty well. That's very nice. Uh, but in terms of our physical world, we're, we're not, you know, going to the moon as we used to. We don't really have very ambitious plans for our infrastructure. Uh, visions of um, the American future, they tend to be dystopian in literature and in science fiction. It used to be they were forms of exaggerated progress that reality would then even surpass. But we've lost that notion that our physical environment in the future will somehow be radically different than it is now. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure how our audience will feel about that answer. I think definitely at a a government-backed, large private enterprise-backed sort of project base, I mean, when you talk about going to the moon, we don't see that anymore. Um, I mean, I do see that Moore's Law has dramatically lowered the barriers to entry for anyone wanting to start a technology business. And, you know, we're we're looking at things like artificial intelligence um, being integrated into our lives. Solar became cheaper than coal in 2016. the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing <clears throat> technique could totally um, potentially cure cancer in 10 to 15 years if, if Bill Gates gets his way. You know, Autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles are coming along. We've, we're looking at the 3D printing of human tissues, cells, and even organs. Um, and when it comes to commercial space travel, we've got the likes of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk pushing, pushing forward and dramatically lowering the cost of space travel. Um, I think the Falcon rocket that SpaceX has uh, manages to launch and get into orbit for something like 20, 125th the price that what NASA, uh, what it would cost NASA, but NASA's obviously not doing that anymore. Um, and then there's a Khan Academy um, who democratize education um, with less than 100 employees. Uh, kids all over the world can get onto that platform. So is it, is, it, is it a case of perhaps not so many one or two or three big grand projects, but 
a lot of, say, smaller projects which collectively can have a big impact on humanity? Uh, we are doing some smaller projects, but keep in mind a lot of what you mentioned is really about the future. Mm. So something like driverless cars or CRISPR gene editing techniques, uh, those are coming in terms of the science. We read about them, but they will be delayed for decades because in terms of the law and regulatory frameworks and liability issues, it will take us a very long time to sort those out. Those are technologies, in essence, we are afraid of them. Mm. Even though driverless cars are safer than cars driven by human beings, we'll apply much tougher standards to them. You'll need to get the coordination of city governments, county governments, you know, state or provincial governments, the national government, and that's going to be a huge mess. Uh, we've become much less able to digest a new physically real technical innovation than we had been in the past. Yeah, so I guess reading between the lines then, it's not so much that we're not thinking big, but that a lot of the sort of infrastructure or regulatory landscape isn't there. And perhaps that, that's the issue then. That Well, it is there, but it's, a, it's an obstacle. So mm. we're doing great when it comes to information, like Khan Academy you mentioned. Mm. Uh, that's a great development. We're going to see more of that. Uh, but information is the one sector where we're dynamic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest of the economy, not so much. Yeah. So, so what role can, um, say, governments, both at a federal, state, and local level, um, do to, to increase the adoption of, say, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing techniques, of autonomous vehicles? Um, obviously, there's other things that slow the adoption. There's human behavior. Uh, you know, there's technology infrastructure. Like when you talk about autonomous vehicles, it's not just regulation, but it's also at charging stations being readily available. Um, it is people being comfortable stepping into a self-driving car. And the moment someone dies from a self-driving car, which uh, was... Uh, which did occur a few months ago. It was all over the news. Even though 30,000 people die per year in the U.S. alone um, on our roads, the moment a machine is behind that death, people just uh, are up in arms about it. Uh, that's correct. So we're applying, you know, tougher standards. If you took today's standards, you know, for safety and predictability, we couldn't have built the modern world had we applied those standards earlier on. And those are the standards we, we work so hard to implement now. Mm. So I think we need you know, this greater willingness to take risk. What can governments do? They should spend more on research and development. But in most countries in this world, governments are spending either a constant amount or less. More and more of the government budget is taken up by transfers, and our government has become a big insurance company. If you look at what it spends its money on, almost 80% now is spent on insurance of some kind. Mm. Yeah, and I can't speak too much uh, for the U.S., but I know uh, the, the state of Victoria here, state, the, the state government, their um, expenses in the last 10 years alone have, have doubled. And there's a lot of um, government-owned bodies whose expenses in the last five years alone have doubled, which is a worrying trend because what you're seeing in a lot of private enterprise, particularly these emerging companies, um, the likes of, of your SpaceXs and, and whatnot that I mentioned earlier, is that they're managing to do a lot more with a lot less. Uh, you know, the amount of employees they require is significantly less than what they've required in the past. But in government, we've still got this rhetoric of, oh, if, if it's a problem and we need to fix it, we'll just throw more resources at it. That's right. And we're talking right now in our federal government of significantly diminishing the amount of money we give to our medical R&D through the National Institutes of Health. That would be a huge mistake. Uh, but there's a good chance we'll end up doing it. So we're moving in the wrong direction in terms of government.
Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more on that. Um, and I think rather than I mean, I've had guests on the show previously, such as uh, Parakana, who wrote the book uh, Connectography, um, who effectively said that governments should be engaging more with private enterprise, with academia, rather than trying to do it all itself. Um, you know, effectively moving to a technocracy rather than your, your traditional democracy. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm a big fan of his. I very much liked his new book. He and I are doing an event together in Switzerland oh, in well. a few months' time. And I think he's exactly right. We need to be more technocratic and think of ourselves as building a kind of, you know, mastery over the world. Yeah. And not just over information. We're using the transmission of information to slow down changes in our physical world rather than accelerate them. Mm, and then that is effectively what innovation is all about. It's about giving us time. That's right. Mm. Um, I wanted to touch on uh, your thoughts on Elon Musk. Obviously, a lot of listeners of this show will be a big fan of Musk's, but you know there is a lot more thought leadership and uh, not, not just thought leadership, but just a lot more articles and, and sentiment out there that is dividing people. Some say he is a tech visionary. Others say he's a financial dilettante. So, you know, the recent... Both can be true. Yeah, both of them true, right? I mean, Solar City uh, lost $700 million in, in the first nine months of 2016 before merging with Tesla. Um, so, what? firstly, I mean, what, what, where do you stand on this? Um, you just said both of them are true, but where do you lean? Well, I admire him greatly, but I think he will fail, and his failures will be a sign of the defects of the modern world. The satellite launches, that's succeeding already. I, I have no worries about that. Uh, but Tesla with electric cars seems to be failing financially. The Hyperloop, it's too hard to get the rights to all of the land and all the regulatory clearance. Regulators don't even know what it is they're supposed to be approving. So I think most of his projects will have made this great, grand, glorious effort, but not be able to buck the system. Mm. And I think the only one that's really going to last is the satellites. Mm, it's, it's interesting. Um, do, you, do you think there's some benefit, though, in, I suppose, some intangible benefit uh, with having someone like Elon Musk inspire our next generation to adopt that sort of 10x moonshot uh, mindset? Uh, again, I admire what he's trying to do, but there's also the risk that people see, well, even a guy as spectacular as Elon Musk has mm. failed at this, mm. and whether the next generation will copy him or shy away from that as a role model, I don't think we know yet, but I'm a little worried it might be the latter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, as as entrepreneurs and, and and on this podcast in particular, we're always encouraging people to embrace uh, failure to learn. However, we we talk about smart failures and and failing small so you can recover, as opposed to failing big with multi million dollar losses and so on. Yes, maybe billion dollar losses yeah, in this case. In this case, billion dollar losses. That's correct. Um, okay, so I guess I wanted to just sidestep over to something you've talked about uh, in a blog post I read recently. I believe it was on NPR. Uh, we talk about uh, people's complacency effectively resulting in fiscal deficits, uh, widespread unemployment. And I guess this is an interesting topic, what with you know the advent of AI and blockchain um, potentially creating more wealth than what we know to do with. So there's a lot of talk now about UBI, universal basic income, will that be the answer? And, and you know, my thoughts are that even if everybody had access to X amount of dollars, we're still human beings. We still want to contribute. We still want to play a role in the world. Um, yes. where, where do you sit on this? I mean, on one hand, yes, we may be looking towards more you know, unemployment, 
but will it be under the sort of conditions of some sort of a UBI uh, structure? You know, I used to favor UBI, but I've turned away from the idea. Mm -hmm. And what I observe in many countries, the U.S., you know, especially the United Kingdom, is voters are so unwilling to send money to immigrants. And I think that's unfortunate because immigrants, you know, bring a lot of vitality. But if we put in a UBI, I'm afraid the long run result is we would very drastically restrict immigration and shoot ourselves in the foot. So I don't actually think we can do that. Maybe Denmark could make it work or New Zealand, uh, but a very large, diverse country. I, I now think UBI is unfortunately not the path forward. Mm. So have you, have you done much pondering about the path forward when it comes to, say, artificial intelligence, automation, potentially replacing most of today's jobs? And, you know, there's no crystal clear evidence to suggest that those jobs will be replaced. Um, you know, in, in the past, whenever there was a big type of technology disruption, there may have been a paradox and then new jobs were created and we all moved on. However, you know, the trend seems to be labor, <coughs> labor market uh, productivity is decreasing. Um, the amount of employees that organizations are employing is decreasing. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the evolution of uh, AI and what it means for employment? You know, my previous book called The Average is Over is on exactly that question. Mm. I think we'll see a lot of jobs disappear at a much higher rate because of AI. There will be new jobs created, but a lot of them will have lower pay, and they'll mostly be service sector jobs. So people who are good at or service sector jobs will do okay. I think this will favor women over men for the most part. Manufacturing jobs will become harder and harder to get. This will remove more and more workers from like the ultimate source of innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think it will be a very rocky transition period for most countries. Mm. And I like the title of your previous book, Average is Over. It actually reminds me of a conversation I had with Alec Ross where he basically said there will be no room for, for mediocrity. Um, we, we, yes. Yeah, we were talking about uh, legal technology and how it will automate a lot of what uh, associates and even senior associates do. Um, and that rather than five associates reviewing a contract, you'll probably have one who's really good reviewing the output of, say, five or ten automated contract reviews, um, as opposed to having five people review those contracts. So he basically said, yeah, similar to what your, your book proposes, average is over, and unless you're absolutely excellent at something, there will be no place for you. Yes, but the people who are highly productive will learn much, much more, and we've seen this trend already, of course. Mm, yeah, and we and that trend that we were talking about at the start of the show about the divides just seems like it's set to get bigger and bigger based on that unless there are some sort of fundamental changes. Um, so one final point or one of the final points I wanted to touch on was uh, the median male wage uh, was actually in the United States was actually higher in 1969 than today. Um, can you, you know, elaborate it's just on that? Now, it's just now reached parity. You know, when I, when I wrote that sentence, it was true, uh -huh. but now we're back to where we were. Wow. That's the so-called good news. But that is um, quite fascinating. I mean, for half a century, when you think about uh, inflation and, and the impact of the cost of just buying a home, to have the median male wage uh, remain stagnant. I mean, is that uh, adjusted for inflation? or That's adjusted for okay. inflation. It's also a sign that a lot of the progress we've made has been the result of women working more and being better educated, which is great, mm. uh, great for everyone. But, you know, that's an advance in productivity. It's not going to happen a second time. You know, the number of women working is not going to go up again an amount equivalent to what it did the first time because of women's liberation. So a lot of the men have been getting a kind of free ride. 
due to women working harder. Mm. And I, and I and guess, yeah. And I, and I guess there are a lot of other influencing factors. And I mean, we often draw uh, similarities or not similarities. You often compare uh, where we are today with say where we were in the fifties and sixties in, in terms of productivity growth. But I guess we had the very unique circumstances then of being in a, in a post world war two boom where we were effectively working off a low base. Whereas now we're um, at a much higher base. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, and, and the last thing I wanted to touch on before we jump into our, our lightning round, Tyler, was um, you've got a quiz on your website where people can actually test how complacent they are. What can you tell us about that? Well, if you read my book, uh, The Complacent Class, and you wonder, how do I fit into this picture? This is something uh, a few of us came up with to try to look at your own life and see uh, you know, how many chances are you taking. Mm. And, you know, I would just stress as an author, to write a book is a response to a problem. It's actually a somewhat complacent form of a response. Mm. You know, I could have gone out there and thrown a brick, and I didn't. So we all have a fair amount of complacency within ourselves, and I will plead guilty to that as well. Mm. But I guess the, the, the what you are effectively doing is raising awareness. And the more people that That's are correct. aware, the, more, the, higher the, the higher the likelihood that someone will go out there and throw a brick. I don't favor the brick throwing, but I think <laughs> here in the U.S., we need a much greater sense of urgency. And again, our U.S. and Australia are a bit different in this regard. We have mm. more problems than you do right now. Mm. Mm. That's, it. That's very interesting. Um, okay, Tyler, well, look, thank you so much. You've provided our audience with a lot of uh, knowledge and a lot to ponder. And we'll link up um, the book in the show notes. But before I let you go, I cannot let you go without throwing you into our lightning round. Are you ready to rock sure. and roll? Let's I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so question number one is, if you could work for any company at any stage of the company life cycle, who would it be and why? If I had the technical ability, I would have loved to have worked for Google in the early years when they were mm. developing search and changing the world in a way no one thought was possible. Yeah. That would be my pick. Definitely, and back when they were competing with the likes of, um, who was it, X, X, uh, Alta Vista and Lycos and AOL at the time. Yes, I think also University of Chicago earlier in the 20th century was very impressive, mm -hmm. involved in the atom bomb, uh, a lot of economists, famous political thinkers, that was a very magical time there, that would be another pick. Mm -hmm. Great answer, and, and question number two, Tyler, is if you could ask anyone a question, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask? I suppose I would ask Jesus Christ, well, what really happened? Mm. That's, that's a great one. I've had people in the past say they, they would just look into the eyes of someone like Jesus Christ um, just to get the measure of the man, which was an interesting one, but uh, that's a great answer. And, and finally, um, I like to get into the, into the minds of high performers and find out how they stay on top of their games. But you're now 56, Tyler, and you're still releasing books, still you know, raising awareness around the world of these very important topics. How do you stay on top of your game? Do you have any rituals or routines? curiosity but i would say the most important thing you need to do get it done first thing in the morning every day no matter what do it every day it will add up and you'll get better and more productive at it every single day get it done first focus on it that's my advice mm -hmm. fantastic love it um okay so where can people go to find out a little bit more about you tyler and connect well they can google my name tyler cowan c-o-w-e-n my Twitter handle is at Tyler Cowan. I have a homepage. I write a blog called Marginal Revolution. You can Google to that. Mm 
and I have an online education site called mruniversity.com with free videos about economics. Fantastic. We'll, we'll link that up in the show notes for all of our listeners. Thanks again, Tyler. You've been an awesome guest, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.